You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. If we haven't met, my name is Ryan Reich. I am care pastor, pastor over care and recovery here. Basically just means uh, my responsibility week in and week out is to make sure that you all are well-equipped to care for one another as church family. So that is my role here at our church. Um, Today we're continuing our Acts uh, series. So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 20 this morning. We've got a good bit to read. Uh, but before we get there, I want to uh, actually want to start with a verse in Ecclesiastes. You don't have to turn there. But before we get to Acts 20, I want us to, to uh, have some context. I want us to have a, a way that we're looking at this. So uh, Acts chapter 20 makes sense in light of Ecclesiastes, where in chapter 7, the writer says, it is better to go into a house of mourning than a house of feasting. According to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, it is better to go into a house of mourning than a house of feasting. And that might strike you as, as an odd thing to say, because I think all of us uh, would agree that we would much rather feast than mourn. But the, the, the author's point is that there's something hopefully and helpfully sobering about death and about considering death. There's something really helpful about looking at death and helping you consider uh, your life and see it a little bit more clearly, to see what's important and what's not important, to see what is worth your time and what might be worthless. Uh, In fact, this is why a lot of churches, uh, more traditional churches than ours certainly, uh, have uh, graveyards right next to their church building. One of the reasons that they have graveyards on their property is that it reminds the congregation to regularly think soberly about their life, to consider all of the saints that had gone, have gone before them, to be thankful for, for what they, they've done, how they've, how they've ministered to us, but also to consider this is, this is our end, right? Uh, growing up, <laughs> one of my favorite parts of summer was uh, going to my family's lake house in North Carolina. Uh, so after the war, my, my granddad started a demolition company, and he basically just took all of the materials that he tore down and built this shack that we call the lake house. It is not nice. You cannot live there full time. It is just a place to go to sleep while you're jumping in the lake. Uh, and driving to the lake house from my parents' home, uh, when you're about 10 minutes away, there's this, tr- there's this road. It's called Beck's Church Road. And there's a Beck's Reformed Church on one end and a Beck's Lutheran Church on the other end. And both of these churches have massive graveyards beside them. And for years, I mean, way longer than I should have thought this was funny, uh, my dad would tell the same joke as we drove by. I'm, not, I'm talking about from like when I was like six to when I was like 15, Right. So we'd be driving, and my dad would say, Ryan, we'd pass a graveyard. He'd say, you know, how many, you know how many dead people are over there? And I would say, how many? And in his most famous dad joke, Tommy Reich would have me rolling when he would answer, all of them. <laughs> and it's the stupidest joke. 
And it gets me to this day. I mean, it, it, encaps, it encapsulates my dad uh, to a T, actually. Um, this point, you know how many people have died? All of them. All of them. Everyone who's lived that's not currently alive has died. Except for that one, he rose again. But graveyards are full uh, and they're, they're fascinating, but they're full of these stories of people's lives. Every headstone that you walk by represents a person, a person who lived, uh, a person who uh, likely lived, uh, they grew up, they maybe went to a school like you did, they had a family like you did, maybe they had a spouse, they had lost loved ones on the way, they had experienced personal tragedy. Every headstone represents all of these things. And it's not just the, the names and the dates. In fact, in fact what, what really matters in a person's life is represented on a headstone by a tiny dash. It's the time in between their date of birth and their date of death. That's where life is lived. That's what made that person a person. So today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 20. And the reason that I bring this up, it was a helpful analogy for me. There was a, a pastor named J.D. Greer, and he taught this passage and called it Paul's tombstone. And this idea is that uh, this was not literally Paul's tombstone. Paul was, according to tradition, beheaded in Rome. So he, he probably didn't have a tombstone. But this is, this is Paul's extended goodbye that he gives to people that he loves before he embarks on his final journey to Rome. And he's giving what we have often called a gospel goodbye. He is saying goodbye for the sake of God's mission. He's saying goodbye for the sake of God's mission. These are Paul's parting words to a particular church, the, the elders in Ephesus, that he won't see again. So what I want us to do today, I want to read through it. We've got a good bit to read. I'm going to work us through it a little bit. Uh, and I want to see what does Paul say about himself? Uh, what, it, what does he hope that, that he will be remembered by, and then how could we, how could we learn that? So uh, let's read the whole thing together, and then I want to draw a few things out for us. This is God's Word. This is Acts 20, verses 17. We'll, we'll start in 17. We'll go through 38. I'm going to stop and start a little bit, but verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's saying right there, he's saying, you know how I lived among you. You know the life that I lived. You know what my time with you was spent doing. It was for Jesus. It was serving Jesus. No matter whether things were going well or things were going poorly, my life was spent serving Jesus for your sake and for the sake of your neighbors. Continue on verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment 
and afflictions await me. This is where we get to the, the gospel goodbye part. He says, I'm going because God wants me to go. And I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have all of the details, but I, I know it's probably not going to end up good for me. But I'm going. He knows what lies ahead is likely not just going to be difficult, it's likely going to be costly. He knows that it's likely going to be painful. And he says, I am confident that this is God's will for me. And I just want to draw that detail out for us because I want us to recognize how tempting it is for us to believe that God would never want to take us anywhere hard, that God would never want to lead us through anything difficult. That is such a temptation for us to believe in our Western culture, right? It's so tempting to say, I just felt the Holy Spirit leading me to do this when the this is something that makes your life a lot better. And the this is something that you've wanted to do for a really long time. And sometimes that's it. Sometimes God does call us to those things, but not always. Not always. Sometimes God desires the hard thing for us, for our good and for his glory. And if you really want to follow Jesus, if you really want to become more like him, we need to have that framework. Gold is refined in flames. So let me continue. Verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I had received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, this is the thing. This is what I'm about. This is what I want for you more than anything. Paul says, I ran the race that God set before me. I've been faithful in this. I can, I can tell you about who he is because I've, I've run it. I've, I've lived it. Continuing on, verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul's saying, I did what I was called to do. There's no, no moment where he cowered. There's no moment where he failed his people. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. He's telling these men that he's about to leave, that he's, he is leaving an authority in his place. And he is saying, follow that pattern that I have set. 
Have you ever wanted something for someone in such a way that they didn't want for themselves? Or, or maybe have you, ever, have you ever wanted someone to believe something that they just didn't believe? Maybe it's a, a friend or a family member that doesn't have the hope of Christ, doesn't know Jesus at all, and, and they, kinda, they just don't care. Paul's saying that his life, this man's love and care for these people was so strong that he would admonish them with tears in his eyes as he urged them to put their hope in Jesus. That's the kind of love that this guy had for this church. Continuing on, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that last line there, that's really a great summation of his, whole, of his whole speech. He was saying, while I was with you, I gave more than I took. I gave of myself to you. I gave of you my time. I poured out my energy for you. And above all, I gave you Jesus. Verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down. And prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, for they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now, obviously, Paul is, uh, he's talking primarily about the three years that he spent with these people in Ephesus. But, but essentially, what Paul is describing is, He's, he's looking at his dash on his tombstone and he's saying, this is what I filled my life with. This is what my dash consisted of. He gives a few different things, not every detail, but a few different things that summarized how he spent his life with him. Notice this, nowhere in this gospel goodbye does Paul say anything like, I wish I had done blank. If only I had more time to get around to it. He doesn't say that. Notice that he doesn't say, guys, I'm sorry that I didn't do this. I'm sorry that I didn't do X. I know that would have been better. In fact, it's quite the opposite. At one point, he, he says, I'm innocent of the blood of you all. I mean, Paul's confident, right? At the end of the day, he's saying, y'all might jump off the crazy train. It's not because of me. I gave my life for you. I'm innocent of the blood of you all. I know it's not going to be my fault if you do. I hope you don't. But if you do, I know it's not my fault. Paul's words are, are confident and positive towards how he lived with them. And with his departure uh, in view, it's certainly sad, He's not leaving them full of regret, though. 
Paul's leaving them full of confidence, with a heart full of gladness. And I think in some respects, it begs the question, when the time comes for us to say goodbye, will you and I be able to do the same thing? Will you and I be able to say goodbye with the confidence and the gladness that Paul was able to? Another way to put it, have you ever thought about what your dash would be filled by? The time in between life, birth, and death. What is your dash going to feel like? Whether that's, uh, you know, for some of us, that dash is our time in Columbia. The dash is the time we moved to Columbia from the time that we moved away from Columbia. There's another type of dash. It's the type that you, when you join your life group to when your life group multiplies. There's certainly a dash there. But there's also the dash of when you were born and when you'll die. Have you ever thought about that dash? Because the reality is that each one of us, like Paul, and like many others who had gone before, we are going to give a goodbye at some point. We're going to give a goodbye. For some of us, it might be when our, again, our life group multiplies. Friendships change. We have a, a gospel goodbye. For some of us, it might be we move to a new city, graduate, we get a job, new career, or maybe we move halfway around the globe for the sake of his mission. But there's a, there's a goodbye in that. For all of us, it will certainly be when Jesus calls us home. So in my experience, it can be really easy to get caught up in the day-to-day, to get caught up in the mundane, our busy schedules, the rigors of work, what's going on with our kids, the latest show that's out. Often we don't consider what our lives are actually becoming. We don't consider what is our dash being filled by. We often want to avoid what Ecclesiastes calls the house of mourning because it's painful. In so doing, we miss out on opportunities to consider the overall scope of our lives, where we're headed. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to learn from Paul. I want to take a look at some of the things that he highlights here. I want to take a look at, uh, look back on his time. And uh, I, want to, I want to help us not to be in a different place for pause. I want to help us not look back on our lives thinking, I wish I'd have done more. We could look back on our lives and say, I did, I was faithful. So uh, I want to look at three different ways it looks like to live well in the dash. I also have a side note, and not many of you are going to get this, maybe Sarah Ellis and Catherine James, but I'm from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and our city is referred to as the dash. <laughs> So if I ever have a sermon to preach in Winston, this one's it. (laughs) How to live well in the dash. That's not what we're talking about, but I I could not say it. Um, I could have. I chose to say it. Um, So so this is is really how he leads into the whole thing. Paul, Paul leaves a lot of places on his journey, but he takes special time to say goodbye to the Ephesian elders because he shared life with them. Paul shared life. And one of the ways that it looks like to live well in the dash is to live a shared life. 
He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. He's saying, you you know how I lived among you. You had a front row seat to my life. You saw how I lived. You saw how I spoke. You saw what I taught. You saw the ways that I served. You saw the ways that I struggled. You were there when I faced trial. You saw it all. They knew Paul and he knew them. There's a deep sense of fellowship between Paul and the Ephesian elders. And for Paul, there are things that he cherishes. There are few things that he cherishes more than his, uh, his relationships, his, his accomplishments, what he's gotten done, what he's produced. It's nothing compared to the people that he served. The people that he served. We see this throughout his goodbye. He said, I was with you for three years. He said, I didn't hold anything back from you. I didn't stop night and day in between tears for all of you. Even as he's leaving, his primary concern is for them. Not about the church they're building, not about the ministry that they're doing. His primary concern is for them. Verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Verse 35, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it's better to give than to receive. Paul knows what's coming for him. Paul knows what's coming for him. But even as he knows the pain that he's going to face, he's thinking about them. He's thinking about their needs. He's thinking about how he can encourage them, how he can protect them and their future growth in Jesus. Because for Paul, his ministry was not a checklist of things to get done. It wasn't a task list. It was always about the people. And the tasks that he accomplished, the goal was to serve people. That's what he wanted. And the people are what mattered. One of the common things that people regret most on their deathbed is not that they wish they would have worked harder, that they would have been more successful, that they would have saved more, or they would have traveled more. They're thinking about people. I know for many of us that are in that middle stage of life where we're building and managing and we're grinding and, and all, that, all that has its place and it's important. But one of the chief temptations for the stage of life after you've graduated college and before you retire is that we can neglect deep relationships now under the belief that we're going to have time for that later. Only to wake up later and realize that, that choosing not to be close to others now only leaves us further and further away later. And that's a hard thing in our moment. I think uh, one of the few things that's harder in modern America than the, is, is this, which is uh, the idea that your relationships are what will last. And it takes sacrifice to live these types of relationships. It takes a willingness to root ourselves in a community with other people, knowing we're not going to leave. When the winds come, when things aren't cool anymore, when we have conflict, we're not going to just leave. We're going to be deeply rooted 
That takes sacrifice. It takes commitment. Uh, I had a friend in college. She was actually a little bit older than me out of college, but um, when I was in college, uh, she would uh, she would serve with hospice. She would spend time visiting folks who were quite literally on their deathbed. And part of her ministry at hospice was for uh, sitting with folks who, who didn't have people that came to visit them. Uh, so she'd take a few hours each week and she, she would go sit with people as they were dying who were alone. She told me that one of the most common types of people that she would sit with were surprisingly successful businessmen. Folks who had a lot of money, folks who were leaving quite the legacy in their companies, and yet because they devoted themselves to work on their deathbed, they had to rely on the mercy of a stranger to come sit with them. Contrast that uh, a few years ago. Uh, there was a member of our church who passed away suddenly. He was mid-50s. There's was an older man named, his man named Steve. He had his funeral uh, right here in this very room. There was not an empty seat. I remember exactly where Santa was standing, right there beside the, the gluten-free communion in between Wes Butler and Michael Martin. Uh, in, his, in his eulogy, his son Jesse shared about one of the things that made his dad so great. He talked about how, how, uh, how special Jesse felt whenever his dad was spending time with him. And then he looked out on the, on the crowd and he said, but you know what made my dad really great? If you also felt like you had a special relationship with Steve, would you raise your hand? I'm telling you, there were 500 hands that went up and not, a, not an eye was dry. When we visit the house of mourning, we learn something about the way that people live their lives. The difference between Steve and some of the men that my friend Alexis would go and sit with wasn't career ambitions, wasn't demands of their job. It wasn't success. It was, a, it was a decision. One made a decision to give himself to people, to live a shared life. And th this is an essential piece to a, to a Christian life well-lived in the dash is that people matter. Relationships matter. Community matters. A life shared with others would be a wonderful thing to say about your own life. Second thing that we see in this is a faithful life. So we see a shared life, but we also see that a life lived well in the dash is a faithful life. Looking at verses 19 through 24, I'm gonna skip around a little bit, but 19 through 24 generally. Uh, Paul says, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Skip to verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course 
and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, my single focus has been and is to do what God has told me to do, to live a life that God has called me to. None of these dangers, uh, none of these threats that he's had, he said, they didn't move me. I remain faithful. I just want to do what Jesus has told me to do. And at the end of the day, is there anything more that, that you and I are responsible for? What is it that God has called you to do? What is it that God has called you to do? In my experience, uh, we tend, we, us, our church family, but also our culture in general, but, but also our church family and in, in knowing you, we tend to err on two sides, two equal and opposite extremes. For some of us, we feel like we are responsible to save the world. We feel the weight of, our wor- of the world on our shoulders. We, we feel the need to fix our friends, to make sure that our kids turn out right, perfect, to save the poor and the orphaned. So we often carry around the weight of these things on our shoulders. And, and here's the thing, no matter how much we do, it's never enough. It's never enough. We're always worried. We're always stressed. We're burdened. We, we think that God has called us to everything. And so we have to be faithful in everything until we get burnt out. So that's one pendulum that I often see. The other, other side of the spectrum are those of us who, who rarely, if ever, stop to think that God has called us to anything. And we're just meandering through life. Uh, we're talking about being able to say like, I, I want us to be able to say at the end of our lives, I have been faithful to Jesus where he has assigned me. I have been faithful to Jesus where he has assigned me. My family, I've been faithful to my family, my friends, my job, my church, my neighborhood. I've been faithful. I didn't shrink back in those spaces. No matter what the, no matter what the attacks were, no matter what the doubts were, I didn't shrink back. That we'd be able to, to look at our lives and, and define success as identifying where God has called us and being completely faithful to it, exercising the gifts that God has given us to serve one another for the benefit of others. God is, God is looking for faithfulness, not rock stars. And so many of us feel like if we're not rock stars, we're just not doing enough. God hasn't called us to be people who go out and do everything. He's looking for people who are faithful with what he's given them. Parents who have faithfully prayed for their children. Parents who have patiently taught them the scriptures. Parents who have faithfully told them about the love of Jesus. 
And regardless of the outcome, God says, well done. Spouses who choose love. Spouses who choose to stay committed. Not just in the ups, but also in the downs. Spouses who serve, who who give of themselves at great cost to themselves. God looks and he says, well done. Life group members who, who show up week in and week out, despite the busyness, despite uh, the exhaustion, who show up and who engage with people in their group, who invest in their community, not just for the benefits that it gives them, but also to love and serve those in their group who don't leave when, when relational friction or conflict arises. God looks and he says, well done. A shared life, a faithful life is what God is, 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 what God is calling us to this morning in this text. But you know how we get there? It's the last thing that we see from Paul. And it's the one thing that encompasses them all. And that's a purposed life. A purposed life. Back to to verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Christ and his gospel were ultimate. There there are lots of people who fill their dash with lots of things. And Paul wanted his dash to be filled with Jesus. He considered the purpose of God to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth so important that he was willing to leave And in this case, he knew it was going to mean pain and hardship and sacrifice. This is so countercultural. Do you see that? Do you see how countercultural this is? Our common ethos tends to be do what's going to make life better for us. Uh, Our priorities tend to go one, how can I relieve stress? That's most important. How can I relieve stress? Two, how can I make things more convenient? And three, what's going to be most comfortable? I'll just do that. Potential pain, hardship. That's not, that's not what Paul's considering when he considers his next move. What tops his list is what is the spirit calling me to do? And how can I be a part of God's mission? Um, a little over a month ago, uh, my uncle Bob passed away. He had a few years uh, battle with dementia. Uh, he, and, he and my aunt Kay, they've been members of their church for 42 years. Uh, and so went to the funerals up in Irmo. And to start the funeral service, 
the pastor took time to narrate what was, what was happening. And in the very front of his order of service for his funeral, the very first thing that it says, I hadn't been able to stop thinking about this. The liturgy for the dead is an Easter liturgy. It finds all meaning in the resurrection. She said, in our church tradition, the funeral service is an Easter service. Because for Christians, death only finds its meaning in resurrection. And a death that only finds meaning in resurrection can only be achieved when you live a life that also only finds its meaning in resurrection. And a life that finds its meaning in resurrection is a life that is lived for something greater than itself. When we see someone like Paul live this life, we don't look at Paul and say, you're great, Paul. You're awesome. What do we say? Man, he really knew Jesus, didn't he? He knew Christ. He was well acquainted with him. For him to have the power to live this way? I think this is what happens when a person like Paul clearly sees the majesty and the love and the grace of Jesus. The natural response to something so great is to say, whatever you want, I'm in. I want this. And so it's worth asking, is that your posture with Jesus? Have you been so moved? Have you been so compelled by his love and his forgiveness and the liberty that he offers you to surrender your life to him? Jesus said, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. One day, we're going to give a goodbye. My prayer for us is that it'd be a gospel goodbye. So I want to close with this question. Does your life only find meaning in resurrection? Or does your life find meaning elsewhere? If you're not a follower of Jesus, I think it's obvious that the answer is no. If you're not a Christian, the call for you today is to repent and to believe, to repent of your self-focused life and to give your life away to the one who took on flesh and sin and guilt and shame to offer you freedom and forgiveness. And one of the easiest ways to tell that you've come to Christ is that you're done with hiding because hiding doesn't benefit you anymore as a Christian. Once you trust in Jesus, you're no longer looking to yourself for righteousness. You're trusting in his righteousness. You're no longer trying to make yourself appear good. You've surrendered your life to the one who is good. And now you stand on his righteousness. So hiding and pretending, they just don't have any value for you anymore. You're free. For those of us who are Christians, 
The call is actually the same. It's to repent and to believe, to repent of the ways that we are still holding on to our life, to repent of the ways that we are still trying to live in control of our world. It's to, to, to surrender those things and to find freedom. It's to find freedom in the fact that Christ made us right with God by taking our guilt and our shame and our scars and our loneliness and our insufficiency and our sin. And he bore those himself, giving us his righteousness, dying the death that we deserved, but then rising again on the third day so that in his resurrection, finally, our lives can find meaning.